Welcome to the Hard Hat and Tails podcast, a podcast for the building and civil engineering sector, where we speak to leaders in the space and get them to share their stories, ideas, and knowledge. Here's your host, Adrian Mansfield. Welcome to Hard Hat and Tails for another interview. Today, I'm in discussion with Kate Onions. Kate heads up the construction dispute and resolution team at the top national law firm, Shakespeare Martineau. So from a point of view of our market in the construction space, Kate is very well positioned. She's got over 20 years of experience working within the house building sector, particularly helping her clients prevent and resolve disputes, which I can imagine the current market is quite a time-consuming act. A firm acts for seven of the top 10 house builders, which is amazing, and has dealt with more than 7,000 completions in the last 12 months. As part of today's conversation, we're going to talk to Kate about the market and about some of the scenarios, particularly from her point of view, how her house building clients can take on those problems and, and sort of get ahead of them for one of that description and try and avoid some of the scenarios that are often in the market. So welcome to today's podcast, Kate. Thanks, Adrian. How are things over there with you? How, how has the market been for the last sort of 18 months or so with you and with your clients given COVID and all the other bits and pieces? From a personal perspective, it's been consistently busy. So we have been called upon to advise clients about the curveball, which was the national pandemic, COVID. And it's fair to say, initially, at least, most house builders shut up shop. When the lockdown first hit in March last year, there was a taking stock period whereby house builders wanted to do their risk assessment, check that everybody was going to be safe when they got back on site. And there was a varying period of downtime between a couple of weeks to maybe a couple of months. But it's fair to say also that house builders, you know, they're under pressure to deliver a housing stock. We've still got a housing shortage and there's money to be made in the industry. So they wanted to get back as soon as they reasonably could. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, no, absolutely. So given the sort of scenarios at the moment and considering the sort of house building market is, as you say, is certainly a, a buoyant one or at least a, a one that's pushing forward. How are you working with your house builders to sort of look at their supply chain, given that sort of post-COVID issues and and the sort of deals and issues that 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 brings up? Adrian, we work really closely with our house builder clients, both at the front end, so on the procurement side, helping them with contracting, but also when things don't go so well. So in my line of work, I see the full range. I see house builder clients who are sophisticated when it comes to procurement and they operate religiously on their own standard terms and conditions to the exclusion of all others. But I also see the other end of the spectrum where house builder clients either don't have a full suite of terms and conditions for all situations in place, or even if those documents are available, somebody might have taken their eye off the ball and contracted out on site or over the phone. And it's those situations that can become pretty tricky when something goes wrong. So Mm. I suppose my top tip really for house builders is what I say to my own client base is make sure you've got decent terms and conditions in place for all your repeat business, your repeat contracts. So those common ones would be appointments of professional construction consultants. So the likes of your architects, your engineers, et cetera but also your subcontracts with your subcontract supply chain. Because after all, that's how house builders deliver new build properties. You've got your brickies, you've got your electricians, et cetera. So whether they're putting in place a very detailed subcontract or just almost the back of a fag packet, a 
purchase order type document. There's still lots that can be included to protect their commercial position. It can be quite a minefield if you don't get it right up front, making sure that your subcontractors and therefore you are being tight on how you contract with these people because it just ends up can open up a massive minefield to you, can't it, without really knowing about it almost. Yeah, absolutely um, agree. So when your sort of client base, when your house builders are looking at their supply chain, how do they go about sort of sort of assessing where there are issues actually, where there are, how do they get into the supply chain in the first place and get a looking whether there are issues or not? Yeah, so uh, managing supply chain is really key. And obviously it's sensible to keep a lookout for some of the warning signs that might indicate some potential problems, which could lead to either underperformance or even failure to perform on the part of the subbies. So examples include front end. So at the outset, if you've got subbies that are underbidding for work, we talk about suicide bidding. You know, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Or at least do some more forensic due diligence to find out whether actually, you know, this subbie's got the wherewithal to complete the works that you're asking them to do. And then following selection of a contractor. If you encounter any real difficulty in processing the contract documents, are they getting back to you with timely information, signed warranties, all of that jazz? And then during the currency of the project, do they suddenly go off the boil? Is there suddenly radio silence generally and failure to respond to emails or calls without good reason? Bearing in mind we're in the holiday season, so that might represent a good reason. (laughs) And a couple of others, increased levels of variation claims or extension of time claims in situations which you, on the face of it, don't feel were warranted. And as for the couple of key ones, if you become aware that the subby has got a reduced line of credit, their credit rating has gone down, or if resource on site was thickened and it was fine and it was all tickety-boo, but actually you've seen a reducing workforce size and you've heard on the unofficial site grapevine that there are morale issues, there are continuity issues with staff. All of those things can start sounding alarm bells. Yeah, and, and some of those are pretty simple to, I say simple, but, but a, a pretty basic stuff to be doing. You know, checking the, the numbers of people on site and getting the morale of those people is quite easy to find out. Credit checks on companies these days are a number of different ways of getting those, those quite simply, aren't they? So actually... You know, managing the project in the current climate, in the current sorry, in the, in the current modern era, is actually probably quite a come back to some of the old skills, just going on site and seeing where the, the site project is getting on and how things are going, and getting a feel for it, and then looking at some of the new technologies and actually doing some checks and stuff like that. Coming on to the financial side of things, though, obviously that's probably front and centre of a lot of people's mind now as we come out of COVID and and the challenges that have been presented to people over the last eighteen months with cash flow and all these sort of things. So, how would how would you suggest sort of house builders looking at the kind of situations of of just managing the potential financial issues within their supply chain? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Adrian, because, I mean, we've got a large insolvency team here at Shakespeare Martineau, and there's quite a lot of crossover between what I do in the construction industry and what they do. And the reason for that is a simple one, because insolvency in construction industry is rife. Hmm. Having chatted to a number of my partners, we're all jointly of the view that we're going to see more construction companies go. And knowing that house builders really need to be alive to the fact that there's an increased risk of insolvency in their supply chain, particularly against the backdrop of you know labour issues, material shortages. There's also a raft of regulatory change to take into account. So it's more important than ever to, to keep a lookout for the red flags of insolvency. And I often talk to my clients, including my house builder clients, about what you need to look out for. And I've sort of cobbled together a bit of a checklist and, Mm. you know, they fall into three or four different categories. And 
probably the most important one to some extent is payment related signs. So if, for example, a subby isn't paying their own workers or suppliers, alarm bells should be ringing. If there are requests for release of retention when actually it hasn't fallen due yet, that might be, again, a red flag of cash flow issues. Requests, obviously, for advanced payment before the works have been carried out or premature applications for payment before works have been carried out. But slightly more nebulous than that, or a little bit more murky, should I say, are subbies under cash flow strain can sometimes start putting in applications which on the face of it look like they're timely in nature. But actually, when you dig deeper, they're inflated. So they could include claims for extensions of time and loss and expense, which they're not entitled to. Claims for variations, in other words, a change in the works where actually there's nothing been instructed that wasn't in the original contract scope or claims for works that haven't yet been undertaken, materials which are not yet supplied. I suppose a couple of others, you know, we've talked about if there's radio silence on the part of the subby. Yes, that can be an indicator, but also a change in the tone of the communications can sometimes be an indicator. So if it's becoming more aggressive in nature such as there's a threat of proceedings if payment isn't made, uh, might be indicative of cash flow issues. And lastly, site-based changes. So suspension of works, for example, is an obvious one without justification. Reduction in the level of resource we've touched on, but also unexplained or unjustified delays in completing the works by the contractual completion date or actually just a deterioration in the quality of the works and any associated increase in the number of defects. And then a couple of really obvious ones, if they're doing rounds of redundancies, if they're late filing their accounts with company's house, or if they've got unsatisfied court judgment debts, those are the real clear warning signs. But what I'd say to house builders in terms of managing those, keep an eye out for the signs, but then don't be, don't atrophy, actually do something when you see the signs. So keep the channels of communication open, Ensure that your key commercial staff are aware of what they're looking for, but also the need to run it up the pole to somebody more senior within the commercial team so that actually you can manage this as effectively as you can. Yeah, no, I mean, I suppose there's a bit of a kind of, should we say, a site based or a lower down the chain that sort of that feel, well, oh, I know, I know X or I know Y in terms of the company. I'll give them a bit more time. But actually, when you're in that space, your responsibility is to the upward towards in, into your chain in your company not necessarily the acts that the external subcontracts no matter how well you get on with them at the end of the day you want that information coming back up your your own internal chain so you're not being kept at site level and so oh don't worry i'll give them another couple of days to to get away from it sort of thing so i mean you talked a bit about there actually one of the things you mentioned in that respect was about the material shortages and moving on to the kind of the issues we've had in the in the world at the moment so i've heard about a bit about that in the, the construction industry as well in terms of the sort of the, this issue of material shortages so from a point of view, what your view is that going to be on the on the house builders themselves and, and the supply chain side of things? Yeah, I think we there is no doubting it's going to have an impact. We're continuing to open up after an extended period of lockdown post-COVID. And construction industry is pretty buoyant, as you say. And house building remains very buoyant. And so we've seen a strain on the availability of a number of key materials. Supply and demand, it's as simple as that. Um, having spoken recently with a lot of my house builder clients, they're telling me that there are widespread material shortages, and that's one of the biggest problems that they are facing. 
So timber, steel, cement and roof tiles are amongst the materials that there's most severe shortages in. And really, everybody is expecting it to get worse before it gets better. The government has sort of got involved and said they're going to be factoring in to their plans, supports for the sectors. But really, at the moment, it seems that the government's input is limited to asking the Construction Leadership Council to monitor the situation in readiness for taking steps. So really limited input from the government so far. In terms of the ongoing material shortage, it's obviously impacting house builders, but it's more widespread than that. So it will be in the subcontract supply chain, less so construction professionals, but all those trades that the house builders rely on, it's definitely going to have an impact. And I think we can see definitively there's going to be increases in pricing due to lengthening lead-in times and increased demand, making it difficult for manufacturers and suppliers alike to build up stock levels. So what do I think house builders need to be aware of? Well, probably mindful that actually all this could lead to project delays. And with that in mind, I expect over the next few months, six months, 12 months, however long this thing plays out, to see an uptick in the number of contractual disputes possibly with subbies saying that they can't deliver the works at the prices previously quoted. Now, in big construction projects, you get fluctuation provisions in contracts. You don't often get that as between a house builder and a subcontractor. So you could see subbies trying to box clever and recover their profit in other ways. So increased variations claims, increased EOT claims, where perhaps they don't really have an entitlement, but they're thinking that that's the only way that they can sort of swell their profit on the job or claw back some profit. Well, yeah, I mean, if you've got to think about it, somebody's bid for a project 12, 18 months ago at a price level of X for the particular supply chain item or materials that they were building at that time, those prices could have gone, you know, significantly up from X, X plus two or X, X times two even potentially in terms of the, and the impact of that on the profit lines could be could be huge going forward, couldn't it, from the point of view of the subcontractors and obviously locked into contracts, there's not a lot they can do about it, is there? I've heard quite a bit about adjudications recently, but can you just tell me a bit about what, what those are and where they're, where they're fitting into the market at the moment? Yeah, so there are some house builders that are in the happy situation where they say, Kate, I don't really know what an adjudication is, and that's because they've not been bitten by one yet. And I say yet, dot, 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 because the, the writing's on the wall. It's really a numbers game, and ultimately all house builders will have some exposure to adjudication at some stage. So... Unlike court proceedings, which can last 18 months or even two years, depending on the court's availability, adjudication is a speedy dispute resolution process, which just lasts 35 days from start to end. And most construction contracts contain a right to adjudicate because of the simple factors implied by statute. So there's a construction act. Well, it's called the Housing Grants Construction and Regeneration Act, but that's a bit of a mouthful. So we tend to call it just the Construction Act. But that means that steps down into all construction contracts. So whether you're a house builder or whether you're a subby, if you're in a construction contract and you, you get into a dispute, either of you can commence an adjudication at any time. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the process, it's basically the adjudicator who's an independent third party gets appointed and he or she receives a number of submissions from the parties about the dispute and then they reach a decision. It's as simple as that. Unlike having your day in court, often adjudications just proceed on a paper only basis. So the adjudicator makes their mind up based on written submissions, although 
in my experience, some adjudicators favour an adjudication meeting over others that they can sort of see the whites of the eyes of the people who are giving evidence before them. So what about, I've heard something called a smash and grab adjudication, which doesn't sound very good in the best of times, but I don't think it's coming particularly good uh, for the house builders. So what, what is a smash and grab adjudication? Yeah, so yeah, smash and grab adjudications. I mean, adjudications are a headache, but smash and grab adjudications are a real headache. So adjudications are a headache because of the intensive process. Adjudications are said to be fast and dirty, not being rude, but they just they just essentially they proceed at pace. Yeah. Um, so you've got to present the whole of your case within a very short period. And that often requires significant input from the commercial management team. So a real management time drain. The smash and grab adjudications kind of go one step further in terms of the sort of doomsday nightmare scenario for house builders, because it's basically where, for example, a subcontractor puts in an application for payment. If the house builder wants to pay less than the amount applied for, they've got to put in a pay less notice. Now, if they fluff that, if they don't get that right, either because they don't put one in at all or they don't put one in in time and in the correct form, then the subby is quite likely, depending on the relationship that they've got, to go for a smash and grab adjudication. And it's essentially a technical, a technical win, because if you haven't put your pay less notice in, then the subby wins on the face value of their application. And you've got no, as a matter of law, you've got no argument about it. You've got to pay first and argue later, essentially. So as in most of these sort of things, where it's, you've got no automatic going in with no win, there's it seems to me that the sort of thing you should be avoiding, like the plague, to quote the phrase. So how do you, how would your house builders go about avoiding something like a smash and grab adjudication? So the first point to check, Adrian, is to ensure that actually you've got a robust payment mechanism in place which complies with the Construction Act. And secondly, not only have you got the robust payment mechanism in place, but you haven't put your contract in a drawer to gather dust. Your project team, your commercial leads, your QSs, whoever's administering these contracts actually is to grips and completely across the contractual provisions so that they understand what has to be done and when and that they actually do it. Now, there's a number of house builders mentioning no names that I've spoken to over the years who say, well, look, you know, we've got a great relationship with our subcontract supply chain. So we don't bother serving pay less notices. We'll just have a chat with them. But therein lies the rub because, you know, nine times out of 10, that might be fine. And you have a chat and it's all a gentleman's agreement and everybody's happy. But if you've got somebody, a subby that's maybe taken umbrage at a reduced valuation, they don't feel it's fair, or they've got cash flow issues, they might take the opportunity to say, do you know what? We hear what you say, but it hasn't got legs. As a matter of law, we're entitled to everything that we've applied for. And the real problem with them is that ultimately, if you've got a subby that you end up paying first because you've lost an adjudication on a smash and grab basis, and you're then looking to essentially re-adjudicate adjudication two on a true valuation basis, in the time that all that takes to happen, your subby might have gone pop, they might become insolvent. And in which case you've, you've paid good money that perhaps wasn't, was an overvalue, you've paid over the odds and you can't recover it because your money's gone into a black hole and you've got to go and tell the liquidator about it and get pence in your pound if you're lucky. Yeah, and the process presumably will take ages anyway, even if you do get anything back out. So it's just one of those yeah. things. Yeah, getting the process right in the first place and getting those... Uh, key people as we talked about a bit earlier on those getting those key people all bought into the process in the in all forms of it because those are the people on the front line and, and there's a need to be the ones that 
that effectively implement all of this stuff for you. So we've talked a bit about this already in terms of the material shortages and other things, but obviously with the situation with COVID and, and now we're coming out of it, there's still issues anyway. But what about if, you're, if you've got delays on projects, if you've got, for whatever reason, a, a, a significant or, a, or even a minor delay on a project, how would you suggest your, your clients start to look at those situations? Yeah, well, I think I've got three main tips here. The first is to, to really get to grips and have an understanding of what's critical and what's non-critical delay. So delays often happen on projects, but not all project delays cause delay to the completion date. You've just got to understand the difference between the two and look at what the critical activity and critical path is. Essentially, the critical activity is something that's necessary to achieving the end date, i.e. the contractual completion date. And the critical path is a combination of those critical activities that determines the overall project duration. Um, so that's the first thing, understand the difference between critical and non-critical delay. The second is how to effectively deal with an extension of time claim. COVID has certainly thrown up a number of extension of time claims from subbies against house builders, but also more widely main contractors of all different sizes against their employers. And house builders are no different. They're having to, they're at the coalface having to deal with extension of time claims. And the starting point is obviously have a look at the contract. Each contract is going to be slightly different, whether it's your own standard terms and conditions or whether it's you know, one of the common standard form contracts, such as a JCT contract. What's crucial is to understand what events, what delay events entitle the subcontractor to claim an extension of time and mm. then armed with that knowledge, assess whether the situation that has occurred actually falls into that scenario. Ultimately, it's about ensuring that what you do is a logical analysis of the effect of any delay events that have um, occurred or that, that what effect that they're going to have on the completion date and on the programme. So it's best to do a calculation of the actual critical delay rather than sort of a subjective or impressionistic general assessment, because that's going to stand up and stand you in good stead if the subcontractor says, I don't agree, let's go to adjudication. And the last and probably most important thing to some extent, and it's a reoccurring theme in what I will say today, is the importance of records. It's true to say in the context of any construction dispute that the best records will win the day. So maintaining quality, detailed, contemporaneous, that's at the time records is really key. Mm. Not only is it going to help the house builder to undertake the best assessment objectively based on the records of what, if any, extension of time is due, but can also help you defend any spurious claims for extensions of time. And the number of times, Adrian, that I've seen claims, good claims and actually good defences fail because of poor records you know it's just such a frustrating thing for lawyers and clients alike and equally where you've got claims that really are poor on the face of it but they've got decent records they can do much much better than what a spurious claim at first blush you might think should achieve so top tip keep the records and, and deploy them use them to good effect yeah no i mean again that comes back to quite a basic process isn't it just doing those records and things like that which is it's just doing good good basics and you get to a point where you come back. And I suppose just going a bit back to that, when they come to somebody like yourself and ask you to get involved in the process, if you're dealing with recollection of people and not hard and fast records of documentation, it becomes much more difficult to then pull together a case when you're asking on people's recollection. Whereas if you've got the, the documentation there to back up all the information, it makes it much, 
not so easier, but it makes your life a lot, lot less hard, should we say. Yeah, completely agree. So talking about that, and let's get to the worst case scenario. So if a company is looking at the situation and they're looking at potentially considering um, termination, what are the issues that they need to be looking at when they're looking at the idea of a terminating a contract or the consequences that they might have to deal with under that sort of contract arrangement? Yeah, so this is really the worst case scenario. This is a subcontractor or a professional consultant underperforming to such an extent that you think actually we're better off getting rid of them, drop kicking them off this project and getting somebody in to replace them. The unhappy reality, I suppose, is that in my what 20 years of experience of dealing with these issues, termination is probably the most knotty issue in terms of it giving rise to a hotbed of construction-related disputes. And you'll find that however solid you think your termination rights look like based on the, the situation, subbies or consultants will argue that, that black is blue, blue is black. And so you can get sucked into these satellite disputes about the rights and wrongs, however strong you think your position is. So the starting point, as ever, really, with these scenarios is to have a good understanding of your termination rights and where better to look than the contract, which governs your rights and obligations. So the contractual right to terminate is often the preferred way of ending a contract, because if you've got a contractual termination procedure, you've got something in black and white that you can follow. And in theory, that should give you some protection for not getting it wrong, so long as you follow it to the absolute letter. There's probably three key ways that house builders can think about terminating. One is if there's a a situation that arises which gives rise to automatic termination. Probably the most common is if there's a default on the part of the other contracting party. So, for example, if they've abandoned the works, then you'd serve a notice of default and within seven days or 14 days, whatever your contract says, you'd then follow up with your notice to terminate. But house builders, and I think smart house builders, also have a third way, which is termination at will. So, in other words, in my absolute discretion as a house builder, I will decide whether or not I can terminate your contract. Now, it might seem harsh, and there is some case law to suggest that it might be a bit bit of a grey area as to whether or not it will hold water when push comes to shove. But actually, often when, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but often when dealing with slightly unsophisticated trades, having something in writing which says, I, the house builder, can terminate your contract at will, sometimes subbies don't look behind that. So actually, it can be really useful. And I'm, I'm surprised by the number of house builders who don't have that in their standard terms and conditions. And I recommend, you know, the theory, you've got to be in it to win it. So why not put it in? You can always decide whether or not you want to try and rely on it. Yeah, having it having it there gives you the potential to use it. If you're not if it's not there at all, then you've got no chance at all. So so what happens in, in the worst case scenario that you've got no contractual termination provision? If you've got not that haven't got that that clause in your contract or those clauses in your contract in the first place, what's the situation then from a house building point of view? Yeah, you get into slightly knottier territory here because contractual termination is is the most clear cut. But if if you haven't got a contract or there's nothing in your contract that covers termination, then you can still terminate. And it's down to what's known as common law, which is just general law based on cases, essentially, which will tell us whether or not that particular set of circumstances is sufficiently serious to constitute what's known as a repudiatory breach. Now, that's just really lawyer speak for a serious breach of contract, which goes to the heart of the contract. 
Mm. And each each case will depend on its own facts as to whether or not a breach amounts to a repudiatory or serious breach of contract. But an example here would be an absolute unlawful refusal to carry out any further works or put another way, an abandonment of the site or a failure on the part of the house builder to give access to the subby to actually carry out their works, you know, frustrating the works from being carried out. So common law is a bit tricky, but it's not without some legs. <laughs> so the simple secret with that is try and get it in the contract or put it in the contract in the first place and make it a little bit easier and have those, uh, those get out clauses and, and not try and rely on common law, but it is there if you need to. You mentioned there a bit about frustration that it could potentially be a grounds for termination. So just just give us an example. What does that mean, and when would it apply? I mean, you talked a little about it there, but but more detail wise, why? How might frustration apply in these sort of situations? Yeah, so it's interesting that a number of contractors have tried to argue that COVID gives rise to frustration, and what frustration essentially means in a legal context is where neither party has actually defaulted. So there's no wrongdoer, but other unforeseen circumstances have just prevented the contract from being performed as originally intended. The reality is, though, in my experience, and as a matter of law, it can be extremely difficult to evidence that a contract has been frustrated. And COVID certainly falls into that category of probably not an example, particularly in the later months where COVID was absolutely foreseeable. We were right in the heart of a national pandemic. So if you're entering into a contract post lockdown, very difficult to see how you're going to argue that this was an unforeseen event that caused an impossibility to carrying out the the performance of the contract. It might not really, it wouldn't ever be impossible. It just might cost more and take more time. So, I mean, you you may have, may, inverted commas, I know lawyers don't like giving absolutes, so I won't put you on the spot with that one, but somewhere back February last year or or January last year, then going into the COVID scenario at that stage. But now, as you say, 18 months on, that just, it's become, should we say, use the horrible phrase, the new normal. And people would be expected to have, by now, worked out what the issues are and what the potential risks are of such such an issue. Okay. So, obviously, termination is an area, and a key area from a point of view of these sort of markets. Hopefully, it doesn't come to that. But if you're a house builder, if you're in in that space... How would you suggest that they go about getting the termination right and, and getting this thing correct? Because it can, by the sound of things, take quite a lot of time, effort, energy and, and a lot of management into the process. How do you go about getting it right? Yeah, so if you've got a contractual mechanism, then you've got a good starting point at least. And then look at what the grounds of termination are. But absolutely crucially, make sure you follow the process accurately. So that means serving the right notice at the right time on the right party at the right address. You know, there were horror stories of people serving a notice and it's a day late or it's sent by email or not to the registered post or not by special delivery. And that means that the notice of termination is in some way invalidated. And the real rub of getting it wrong is that you yourself can end up in serious breach of contract. So you might try and terminate your subcontractor's contract for poor performance, thinking that you've got it absolutely nailed on. But because of some little I that you haven't dotted or T that you haven't crossed, you get it wrong just slightly, but it's enough for the subcontractor and their potentially smart lawyers to come back to you and say, do you know what? You got that round your neck. And the consequence of that is that you yourself are now in repudiatory breach. And by the way, we'll have our loss of profit on the remainder of the contract as a result. So, yeah, it's really important to get it right. And I think whether you're going down the contractual termination route or the common law 
the kind of, you know, based on case law, general law, termination route, I wouldn't jump and then think about it afterwards. I, you know, terminate in haste, repent in leisure would be my sort of proverb for the day on that. Mm-hmm. And certainly, I think it's a no-brainer, this particular tricky area, is to get some legal advice mm. and legal advice from a construction specialist as opposed to a general practitioner, because there's lots of little foibles in the construction contracts that need to be absolutely nailed on. Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of area where, as you say, when the potential risks are that you end up with a, a lot of egg and potentially a lot of financial risk on your mishandling of the process, it's probably as you say, better to get involved in the, the process as early as possible, again, the lawyers involved as early as possible and make sure you do absolutely everything everything right. We talked a bit about there, about that getting right and all that kind of stuff, and you, you've talked a bit of, a lot about the idea of keeping the records correct so that when this the unforeseen or the, the problem happens, you've got those records right. So how do you sort of guide your house building clients on, on the record side of things and keeping those, those records correct and, and at hand so that when they do need to be used, they're there and and able to be picked up and and used by yourself or perhaps just the in-house teams? Yeah, I mean, my experience is that house builders tend to be all right at retaining documents, but what they tend to do is to retain them in line with the contractual limitation period. And the limitation period is just, again, lawyer speak for how long can you have a claim against you for? And the contractual limitation period is under contract. It's usually six years if it's a simple contract or 12 years if it's executed as a deed. But house builders tend to go for the 12 year period, which is only half the story, really, because I've seen a real uptick recently in the number of claims which are being pursued in tort, which is, again, another general legal area. So tort of negligence, et cetera. And the limitation period there is quite a lot longer. So it can be up to a long stop of 15 years. So on one recent case, I've got a main contractor who had quite aggressively got rid of their documents, both hard copy and everything IT, everything electronic after 12 years. And then three years thereafter, just on the cusp of the 15 year limitation period, a claim for multiple millions lands. It's an uninsured claim. It will be a business critical event if we can't bat it away. So we're desperately trying to do a deep dive with IT to try and recreate some of the documents that we need to get hold of to defend this claim. So I suppose my top tip would be, as I said earlier, make sure you keep them, make sure they're meaningful, but also make sure that your document retention policy is for long enough. I think what's happened is that companies, including house builders, have got very fearful about GDPR. And they've thought, right, we need to have a really robust document destruction policy at year 12. And they've not really necessarily thought about other potential claims which could come later. So, I mean, the consequence of not having the paperwork is is really serious. I mean, I've mentioned it, but if you haven't got any papers to mount an effective defence, you're jeopardising your position in a very serious way. So I would say, given that the days of storing boxes and boxes of paper in high cost storage facilities are largely gone and it's all stored in a cloud-based system electronically at minimal cost make sure you've got it stored on a domestic computer system stored on a cloud-based system or a combination of both make sure also if there's a fire or a systems failure that you've got a backup somewhere and make sure also that you've got a clear document retention policy and that staff are aware of it and that you do some random spot checks just to ensure that, that staff are actually adhering to it. Because as you mentioned earlier, Adrian, you can get sometimes quite a high turnover of staff on projects. And if there isn't that continuity of staff still, 
people have left the business or memories have faded or a combination of both, you can be left in a really sticky spot. So yeah, I hear lots about GDPR from clients, but um, I think 15 years from my perspective is where I'd be advising clients to stick in terms of the retention period. Yeah, and you say, come back to that idea you mentioned earlier on about the fact that if you've got a, a spurious claim, but with good documentation versus a, a potentially a very good claim for defence, but no documentation, then potentially that spurious claim can get through. So the, the investment in that document storage process would probably be a, quite a small investment for potentially avoiding the large risk of it. You do mention GDPR then. So so let's go to that side of things, because it is a it's a topic that's relatively hot on most people's radars at the moment, particularly in the sort of senior levels of of companies because they don't want to be pulled up in front of some court somewhere for doing it wrong. So so how do, bearing in mind you want to keep these records and keep these documentations and, and make sure they're there for the, for the future claims, but is there anything people do need to be aware of on the GDPR front that they need to be thinking about and, and avoiding or, or, or indeed doing, should we say? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, keeping hold of certain documents does raise a red flag in terms of personal data. So when considering how you retain the documents and how long for, there are some key considerations with GDPR, uh, particularly around the use of personal data, protection of data, and house builders are probably more susceptible to holding that type of data than some other businesses within the construction industry, because after all, they are dealing with house purchasers who are generally individuals, and so they'll be holding information like names, email addresses, mobile numbers, etc. So GDPR guidelines basically say that personal data should only be kept when required and for as long as the need can be justified. Now, my overarching view is that given construction companies can be exposed to claims for up to 15 years, then the retention of documents for potential litigation purposes is most likely a justifiable reason to hold on to those relevant documents for that entire 15-year period. But that said, it is worth, from a regulatory perspective, having a chat with a GDPR compliance team specialist. We have such a team at Shakespeare Martineau. It's their bread and butter work. It's a whole niche area in its own right. And certainly they do day in, day out audits of what companies, including house builders and other construction businesses, uh, should and should not be doing and whether they tick the right boxes or how they need to tinker with their document retention policies to make sure that they're absolutely squeaky clean. I mean, it seems like a pretty much a no-brainer just to have that, that MOT, should we say, on what you're doing in that area and just make sure you're you're not falling foul of that, but equally keeping that protection for you for the future from a point of view of, of any potential claims out to, as you say, 15 years. So I think, I mean, that's given us a really good picture of the market and the sort of situations and potentially some of the big risks that people need to avoid. I mean, just stepping away from that moment, maybe casting a little eye towards the future. Do you see any big challenges or any big areas that are coming out in terms of law that are potentially coming into the into the space in the, in the coming 6, 12, 18 months that from what you can see that might sort of impact the house building community or subcontract community that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, there's a couple of things, Adrian, that I think are on the horizon that house builders, probably the bigger, more sophisticated ones are all over, looking at how it is going to impact them. But some of the more regional, perhaps the smaller businesses need to start turning their attention to. And the first is the building safety bill. This is the government's sort of flagship response to the tragedy of Grenfell and it's really putting a whole new layer of regulatory compliance around the building safety bill and what those constructing will be required to do and 
also noteworthy, whilst this is still a bill and therefore not enforced, it's not an act of parliament that's enforced that bites at the moment. The plan, as I understand it, is that those at the end of the supply chain, so those residential occupiers, owners, will have now a 15-year period to pursue claims and that will apply retrospectively. So that just pegs back to, you know, my documents piece about make sure you're keeping your documents for 15 years. Quite how that's all going to operate, it seems like a bit of a muddle at the moment and it could be a real headache for those that could see, you know, the floodgates open for claims. So there's that. I mean, that's a whole topic on its own right, but it's something to be alive to. And the other one is the new homes ombudsman. So the government has sort of allowed over many years the house builder industry to regulate itself. So self-regulation around the quality control. But because of how many complaints there have been about the standard of the build, the response times to sorting out defects and snagging items post-purchase and post-occupation of new build properties, the government has implemented or is in the process of implementing a new homes code, which will also have as part of it a new homes ombudsman. So again, this is an extra layer of regulation that house builders need to grapple with to make sure that they understand what's required. There is a sort of transition period of, I think, about six months from implementation, which I think is currently forecast to be September this year. So now's the time to start you know, lifting the veil on what that comprises. And you know, if you're unsure, then seek legal advice from construction specialists, regulatory specialists about doing an audit on what you currently have right and what you might need to tinker with to get right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, the first one alone just seemed to me a massive minefield that <laughs> going back 15 years. Yeah, well, I, yeah, as you say, that could be a topic all of it itself. I can see that being something that's going to come up time and again over the coming months and years. Well, Thank you very much for your time. It's been really, really insightful. Some of the some of the points and some of the areas you've you picked up there are, are amazing. And I think the one overriding fact is it's there are often times when you, you speak to lawyers and you think actually they're going to cost you money. They're going to, but actually the point behind a lot of these points is actually the the time and money spent in advance of some of this stuff. You know, talking about termination and other things can save you massively at the back end of the process. So actually doing it properly, consulting with somebody like yourself at Shakespeare Martineau who've got that experience and knowledge in the trade sector in the market know the, the nuances that that brings can save you know the penny wise or a pound foolish or whatever the, the phraseology is apologies yeah. wrong. but that ability to get in there early and, and work the process out i think is the uh, is the overriding piece and obviously getting your own house in order in terms of paperwork but, but also advising and bringing in some outside counsel to get the process done correctly so with that in mind if people are looking to to get hold of you or talk to you about uh, some of these issues that you've now raised the red flags about how can they get hold of you how can they how can they contact you I'm on LinkedIn, happy to connect with anybody in the industry. And my profile is on the Shakespeare Martineau website, together with all my contact details, email, mobile. I'm pretty accessible. And one of the things I'd add, Adrian, is, you know, we we are here for the knotty issues, the knotty legal issues when they raise their ugly head. But we do like to help teach our clients how to fish. So what we tend to do as a value add for our clients is offer them training sessions. So, you know, if there are any house builders out there that might like to talk to us about training, upskilling their commercial team to avoid some of these pitfalls, we're happy to go into some of these topics in a bit more detail than we've managed to do today. Brilliant. Well, yeah, that's great. And what I'll do is I'll make sure a link to the podcast is your your LinkedIn profile and obviously the Shakespeare Martin website linked to yourself as well so people can can easily find that. And again, 
Thank you very much for your time. It's brilliant to, to get this information and this uh, this knowledge that can save both time and, and more probably a lot of uh, potential risk and costs at the end of it all. So uh, thank you very much for the input and thank you very much for the time and, and the information you provided. Pleasure. Thanks, Adrian. <laughs>